want to begin this morning by asking you a question. How many of you have ever heard this line of reasoning before when someone is, is being questioned about a decision they're making or about the way in which they're living their life, maybe their behavior is being called into question, and they'll respond with something like this. See if this sounds familiar. Who are you to tell me how I can and can't live? It's my life. This is my body. This is my life. I can do with it whatever I choose to do with it. Y'all ever heard that before? Something like it? Yeah, it's very familiar, right? A lot of people reason in this way. They say, I can live how I want to live because this is my life. For example, if I want to do drugs, I'll do them. If I want to get drunk and party every night, I will. If I want to have sex outside of marriage with multiple partners, I'll have it. If I don't want to keep this baby, I'll get rid of it. Why? Because this is my life. This is my body. And I can do with my life and my body whatever I choose to do with it. Well, the question I want to start us off with this morning before I get into the message is, is simply this. Is it really... Is it really your life? Is it really your body? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning we are ending our five-week study entitled The Five Alones of Christianity. Today is All Saints Day, November the 1st, which means that yesterday was All Hallows' Eve, which is the day before All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day. And on All Hallows' Eve, close to 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, a theology professor by the name of Martin Luther posted a writing to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, that led to the great Protestant Reformation. And we have been saying throughout this study that we as believers, we as a church, are a product, a result, an outcome of this great reformation that took place. God worked in a mighty way in and through these reformers at this time to bring us to where we are today. The reason why we're here this morning with our Bibles in hand, in our own language, in a translation that we can understand, and the reason why I encourage you to read and study your Bible week in and week out on your own, the reason why we come in here each and every week and we look to what God's Word says, and the reason why we, we look to God's Word and we pattern our lives after the teachings in this book, and, and, and myself and other leaders encourage you to do so, that all comes as a result of this great reformation that took place. And there were several key doctrines that were introduced during this time that Luther and the other reformers, they said the church desperately needed to relearn. The church at this time had strayed from the core teachings of the Christian faith. And so Luther and others like him went back to the scriptures and they reintroduced these core teachings. And we've looked at many of these already in our study. We've looked at sola scriptura, 
which is Latin for scripture alone. We've looked at sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone, sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. And last week, we looked at solus Christus, which is Latin for Christ alone. And today, we're wrapping up our series by looking at the final sola of the Reformation, and that is soli deo gloria, which is Latin for to the glory of God alone. In the 1500s, the life of people in the church had become extremely complex and compartmentalized. Many viewed their lives in two separate realms. First, you had the sacred lives of the monks and other members of the the papacy and other church leaders, and they were viewed in this day as the go-between. They were the ones who went to God on behalf of the people, and they were also the ones who explained the Word of God to the people and the, the traditions of the church and the teachings of the papacy, which they held on par with the Word of God. But as Luther and the other reformers began to study the scriptures, they came to realize that God's people are not to be separate in this way. And our lives are not to be compartmentalized in this way. They believe and taught that all believers and the life of every believer is to be centered upon God. They said that God is to be supreme in every believer's life and in every aspect of a believer's life. Scripture teaches this, does it not? Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John MacArthur, when speaking on this verse of Scripture, said this verse is the bottom line on the Christian life. And it is. Here Paul tells us the primary reason we were put on this earth. He says the reason we're here is to glorify God in all that we do. And let's be honest here this morning. This is a great reminder for us, is it not? Because we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. We think of this time on Sunday morning as being the time to be spiritual and Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, as the time to be secular and on Saturdays when you're watching the Longhorns play. Time to be secular. It's hard to be spiritual watching them play right now. And some of you, you hear that and you would say, well, I I wouldn't put it in that way, but think about it. Many of us show we believe this by the way in which we live in our world. But notice Paul tells us we're not to be divided like this as believers. He says, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Folks, this is what we're put on earth to do. We were put on this earth to bring glory to God. We were put on this earth to know God and to grow in our knowledge of God and to live our lives for Him. We were put on this earth to glorify God in our bodies, to honor Him with our bodies. We're going to learn that message this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. If you're not there, get there. Before we jump in, let me set the stage for you this morning, and I'll just set the stage by simply saying this. The Christians at Corinth were a mess. They were a complete mess. 
though they had been saved, though they had been called out and set apart from this wicked and godless city, the city of Corinth, many of them were still allowing these old influences from their ungodly past impact their new life in Christ. In chapter 6, we learn that the Christians at Corinth, among other things, were struggling with sexual sins. So Paul writes to them here to address these issues and to call for them to go at life differently, to be set apart from the world they were saved from. You see, many of them have been influenced by the teaching in the world at this time that their bodies were their own. See if this sounds familiar. And they had the freedom, they believed, they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies. But we're going to learn this morning from this text of Scripture that this reasoning that says this is my body and I can do with it whatever I want to do with it is not biblical. Truth is, my body, your body, our bodies, this body is God's body. It's God's body. It's not ours. And because that is true, we are to live the way he wants us to live in this body that he has given us. We are to live our lives to honor him with our bodies. We're to honor him in these bodies. We're to live our lives to make him look great. We are to live our lives to bring glory to God in God alone in the bodies he has given us. And in the following verses, Paul is going to explain to us how to do just that. He's going to tell us how to honor God with our bodies, how to bring glory to him. Here's the first point. First, he tells us if we want to honor God with our bodies, if we want to bring glory to God and to God alone, we must first reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body. Like we said already, the Corinthians were a mess. They were easily influenced by the world around them, though many of them had given their life to the Lord. Remember, Paul calls them saints at the beginning of the book. They were still allowing for these ungodly beliefs and teachings in their world and from their pagan past to influence their new life in Christ. This was especially true when it came to the topic of sex. Like I told you earlier, Corinth was a godless city. It was not only filled with materialistic, corrupt, and power-hungry types of people, but it was filled with all sorts of sexual immorality, all kinds of perversity. In this city, sexual immorality was as common a practice as eating and drinking, as breathing. The moral reputation of the Corinthians was so bad that the word Corinth was used synonymously with sex. The Greek word Corinthianzomai, which is translated behave like a Corinthian, was often used in reference to sexual immorality. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Also, the Corinthians, like many in our world today, they had the attitude of, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? It, it's, it's only biology. I mean, we're just, we're just animals. You don't get upset when animals do it. Why should you get upset when we do? And we hear that kind of reasoning in our, in our world today. And unfortunately, over time, these 
ungodly philosophies began to seep into the church. They began to make their way in. And this was, this was happening in, in Corinth at this time. So Paul, he writes to them here to warn them that these philosophies are ungodly and they're carrying with them disastrous consequences. So let's take a moment to look at each of these philosophies that were threatening the health of the church in Corinth at this time and see how many of these sound familiar. First, many of the Christians at Corinth shared this mentality. Worldly philosophy number one, I'm free to do what I want. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? A little Rolling Stones theology. I'm free to do what I want any old time. Many of the Corinthians, they they reason in this way. Look at verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, I want you to notice the quotations around the phrase, all things are lawful for me. It's also in quotations in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. And these quotations have been added by the translators to indicate that this was probably a popular slogan for the Corinthians at this time. This was a Corinthian catchphrase, a a Corinthian slogan. The Corinthians, they live by this philosophy, all things are lawful. In other words, the believers were reasoning in this way because Christ has removed the penalty of sin from our lives. We're free to live however we want to live. They believed that to be the definition of Christian liberty. Some in the church thought, if you want to sin a little, no big deal. Jesus has taken away the penalty of sin, so you're free to live as you want any old time. If you want to have an affair with your stepmother, like the young man did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, yes, this was a messed up church. No big deal, because you're under the law. You're free to live as you want. If you want to take another believer to court, like those Paul mentions in the first part of 1 Corinthians 6, you can do it. Christ has removed the penalty of sin. Therefore, you are free to live as you want. If you want to have sex outside of marriage with multiple partners, go ahead. All things are lawful. You are free to do what you want any old time. Anybody ever hear anybody reason in this way? Maybe not to that extreme. And they don't come right out and say it, but they live like it, right? We've seen that. But I've heard Christians talk about this before. Christ has saved me. I'm, his, his umbrella of grace is big, which it is. But they view that in that way so that they can be free to live however they want to live. That's wrong application, poor application there. The Corinthians were that way. They would probably say something like this. We're not immoral. We're just free in Christ. We're not ungodly. We're just under God's big umbrella of grace. And we're out on the, out on the fringes of that. But we're still under it. Now, notice Paul does give some credibility to the phrase, all things are lawful. But he qualifies it by saying, but not all things are helpful or profitable in other words you're free you're free to make decisions and there are certain things that you're free to do as a believer but paul says know that there are certain activities that are sinful and immoral and carry with them severe consequences like with adam and eve 
Though they were free to eat from any tree of the garden, God told them not to eat from one tree, but they were still free to eat from it. And when they did, what came about after that was disastrous consequences from that act. Paul is giving his readers here a similar word. He's making the point, though you're free to make decisions and though your sin can be forgiven, the price to pay is terribly high. Listen, sin never brings profit. It always brings pain. Always brings heartache. It always brings loss. And this is especially true when you're talking about sins of a sexual nature. Sexual sins have ripped marriages apart, shattered homes, have destroyed Christians and their witness, and have torn Christ's church apart. The price to pay is terribly high. And in the second half of verse 12, Paul qualifies this Corinthian catchphrase once again by saying, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul says, though you're free to do what you want, there are certain activities that if you give yourself to them, they will enslave you. That's what was taking place with some of the Christians at Corinth. Once again, there were some who were living by this motto, all things are lawful for me, and though they were flying under the banner of Christian freedom, and though they claimed to be in control of the situation, though they acted as if they were in the driver's seat, they were in fact slaves to their own desires. That's why Paul gives this warning here in verse 12. He makes the point, though believers are free to make their own choices and decisions, though they are free to do what they want, not every decision leads to true freedom. And as an act of freedom, some of those decisions that are made are because one is in bondage. And there is nothing more enslaving than sexual sin. I know a lot of people who have fallen prey to this. And though some of these individuals continue on, they fly under the banner of, I'm free, I'm forgiven. The truth of the matter is, they are enslaved, unrepentant, and dominated by their own desires. It's miserable to witness someone in this situation. And you really, if you're given over to that, you really need to question whether or not the decision you made in the first place was legitimate. You need to look at Scripture on that. Scripture tells us time and time again that those who are truly free are those who are able to resist these urges and live for God by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. That's true freedom. Do you know that? That is true freedom. Those who are growing in godliness and becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like the world, those who have self-control because of who they are in Christ and because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, those who are free to say, no, that's what Christian liberty truly is. It's freedom from sin, not freedom to partake in sin. Let's be honest. If it meant freedom to partake in sin, who needs Christianity for that? That's what we did before we were saved. Freely partook in sin. It didn't make any sense. Freedom in Christ means that we are now, by His help, through the power of His Spirit, by God's grace, able to resist sin. Second philosophy that was threatening the church was this. Number two, I am to obey my urges, like Sprite, right? Obey your thirst. 
Obey your urges. Look at the first part of verse 13. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Notice once again that this statement is in quotes. Once again, the translators added quotations here to highlight the fact that this was probably another Corinthian motto. Many in Corinth believed that that sex was just a natural biological urge, same as eating and and drinking. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you feel the need for sex, find someone and do it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Really does. Sounds a lot like our cultural context. That's the view of many in our world today. We have been told by some we're just highly evolved animals. We've been told that we have base needs and instincts, same as a dog. So we're just to act upon those instincts, and that's right. We have been told it's not sinful, it's biological. Here's the problem with that logic. God has set us apart from every other living, breathing thing, hasn't he? Though we're both created by God, us and the animals, living, breathing creatures, human beings are the image bearers of God. Paul also tells us in this passage that man is more than just a biological urge. He says God will destroy both one and the other. Now, when when he says that, he's referring to the statement about food and stomachs when he talks about God will destroy both. Meaning that these biological urges that we have, such as hunger and thirst, will one day be done away with. When we as believers are in the presence of God in the life to come, we're going to have all that we need. We're going to no longer hunger. We're going to no longer thirst. So to say that man is nothing more than these biological desires and needs and wants is just not the case. We're so much more, Paul says. There's a third worldly philosophy that Paul addresses, and it's this. It's the philosophy that says, I can treat my body as I please. Now, we've all heard this one. We talked about it at the beginning. We hear this all the time. And and let's be honest. Like I said earlier, many of these have made their way into the church today, haven't they? I've heard believers use this logic. I've heard some say, well, it's their body, you know. They can do with it what they want not biblical that's not biblical god tells us all throughout his word what we can and can't do with our bodies paul tells us here god tells us through paul the body is not meant for sexual immorality do you see that there god's telling us what we can't do with our body through through paul truth is this body is not our own and we are not free to do with it whatever we so choose we'll talk more about that in just a minute But after addressing some of the negative worldly philosophies dealing with the body, Paul goes on in this passage to give us some helpful biblical philosophies when thinking about our bodies. While we're to reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body, look at point number two. We are to accept biblical philosophies that liberate the body. The first philosophy that Paul calls for his reader to accept is is this. Number one, your body is for God. Your body is for God. We mentioned this just a second ago. 
Look at it again, though. Into verse 13, into verse 14. The end of verse 13 and into verse 14. Paul says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for who? The Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Folks, this teaching in our world that says that this body is our body is just not true. I mean, follow this simple logic with me. Who made your body? God? Who redeemed your body? God? Through his son Jesus, right? Who is returning and who is going to resurrect the body? God, right? Who's coming to judge the deeds that we do in the body? God through his son, Jesus, right? So who owns your body? God does, right? I mean, it doesn't take a person with the PhD to figure that out. Your body is God's body. He made it. He redeemed it. He is going to resurrect it. He is going to judge the deeds done in our body. And he is going to one day restore our bodies back to the way they were supposed to be. So we can't, as Bible-believing Christians, believe and say, this is my body. It's just not the case at all. You didn't make it. You didn't redeem it. You're not going to resurrect it. You're not going to judge it. It is God's body. Therefore, we're to live for him in this body. We are to honor him with our bodies. We are to be good stewards of what God has given us. We're to live our lives for him. God didn't give you this body to do with it whatever you want. He gave it to you to honor him and to bring glory to him and to worship him and to serve him. Let's look at the second biblical philosophy that Paul gives here. It's another very important one. Number two, your sin involves Christ. Many reason in this way. They say, my sin is my sin and it doesn't affect anybody else. Really? I've never known of anybody really to just commit sins on an island somewhere that didn't affect someone, right? I mean, of course our sin affects people. It affects those around us, those close to us, those we sin against. And most importantly, it it involves Christ. Look at what Paul says, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, when you were saved, you were joined with Christ. Your body has been joined with him. Every believer is a member of Christ's body. And this is not the only place we're told this. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 2, in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12. He also says this in verse 17 of this chapter. He he mentions the other side of the coin, coin here. He says in verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Our bodies are joined to Christ. Our spirits are joined to Christ. We are one with Christ. Paul says, because this is the case, when you sin, you in a very real way are involving Christ in the process. Now, don't misunderstand me. He's not there sinning with you. But in a sense, because you've been made one with Christ, you're taking him along with you. Look at what Paul says, second half of verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He basically says, because your body is one in Christ, are you then going to go as a a member of Christ, a part of his body, and go be with the prostitute? And some of y'all hear that, and you think, well, that's, that's disgusting. 
That's good if you're thinking that way. That's the way Paul wants you to think about sexual immorality. He wants it to turn your stomach. That's why he's saying this here. Some will say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I've never been with a prostitute. Well, though this was a specific problem in Corinth, we said this is one messy church, right? Any sexually immoral act will apply here. It will. Because you are one with Christ, whatever activity you engage in, in a, in a way you're connecting Jesus to it because he's present with you. How terrible is that? That's terrible. That's why it's so terrible when we run off into sexual sin because in a very real way, we're bringing Christ along because he is connected with us and because our bodies and our spirits are one with him. So for those of you all who think what I'm doing isn't affecting anybody else, that's just not the case at all. Look at biblical philosophy number three. Your immoral actions have serious spiritual consequences. Look what Paul says in verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul shows us here that sex is more than a biological matter. It's a spiritual matter. It's more than a physical union. It's a spiritual union. It unites people in a deep and spiritual way. That's why in the Old Testament it said that if a man ever slept with a woman, he was to marry her. Why? Because the two had consummated a spiritual union. So Paul is saying here, those of you all who have been joined to prostitutes, you have become one flesh with that prostitute. You have entered into a spiritual union with that prostitute. You have united with that prostitute on a deep spiritual level. So though society says, no big deal, it's casual, natural, biological, God's word says, uh-uh. If it's not done in the way it's intended, within the confines of marriage, it is a big, big deal. It is immoral. It's a perversion. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 18. Look at it with me. He says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. And let me tell you, flee means flee. It means get out of there. Some of you might be thinking, well, that's not very polite. I don't want to be mean. Who cares? Run. But this person may need counsel, not from you. Not if you're in a compromising situation with them. You need to get out of there. I mean, that is the simplest application that you're going to find in the scriptures. Run away from sexual immorality. Paul also says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What Paul is getting at here is that the sin of sexual immorality, it cuts much deeper than the other offenses. I think we would all agree that there are varying degrees of consequences depending upon the sin. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And he says that the sin of sexual immorality, it cuts deep. It's not only a sin that involves someone else and that affects other people, but it's a sin that you do against your own body. Therefore, we're to avoid it like the plague. We are to flee from sexual immorality. Here's the, the last biblical philosophy that Paul addresses, very important. Number four, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Look at verse 19. It says it very clearly. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Paul is, is saying here, your body is a temple. And the reason why, believers, your body is a temple is because it has been indwelt with the very Spirit of God. God has taken up residence in you. And he says that to make a point. Just like you wouldn't go out and commit a sexually immoral act in God's temple or in Christ's church. Listen, you shouldn't do it anywhere because you are God's temple. The Holy Spirit resides within you. Your body is a temple where God resides. We're to keep that in mind. It's important to be reminded of that in the way in which we live. And I love the way Paul ends this passage. He ends with a great summary statement, just like he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And this passage, too, is the bottom line on the Christian life. Look at the end of verse 19, end of verse 20. I love this. You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. That's it. That's the point of this passage. That's the bottom line on the Christian life. What is to be our philosophy on life? How are we to live as followers of the Lord Jesus? Paul tells us. He says, believers, you are not your own. Your body, my body, our bodies, this body is not ours. It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what are we to do with our bodies? We are to honor God with our bodies. We are to obey God with our bodies. We are to praise God with our bodies. We are to glorify God in our bodies. We are to live our lives to the glory of God alone. Everything we do as believers, we're to do for the glory of God. He created us, he redeemed us, and he is coming back for us. And for that reason, we are to live for him. Our bodies belong to him. Our lives belong to him and should be lived out for him and for his glory. He created us in his image. We rebelled, we became his enemies. And believers, he has bought us back and brought us back through the precious blood of his son. And he has made us sons and daughters through Jesus. Therefore, in response to all that God has done for us, we are to live our lives for him and for his glory and for his glory alone. Let me end with this. The Bible is clear that one day, we will all stand before God. And all of us will be in one of two groups. We will either stand alone, dependent upon our filthy rags we call righteous, and we will be condemned as the sinners we are and for the deeds that we've done in this body, or we will stand with Christ and in Christ and we'll be welcomed into God's kingdom with open arms, not because of who we are, and not because of what we've done in this life, but because of who Christ is and because of the work that he has done in his body on our behalf. If you're here this morning, you don't have Christ's person and his work applied to your life, I pray that would happen.
this very morning. I pray right here, right now, you would turn from your life of sin and you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Would you pray with me?